Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. Today we turn the page in our study on the story of Jesus, and we're going to consider the man whom God sent to prepare Israel for the coming of Jesus Christ, that man is John the Baptizer, commonly known as John the Baptist. So I want you to turn in your Bibles, if you will, please, to Luke chapter 1. The Gospel of Luke chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through 25. Luke chapter 1. Beginning in verse 5, stand with me in honor of God's word, if you will, please. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John." And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you, and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute, And not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was... As soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, 
His wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among the people. This is the word of God. May he bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Though this is a lengthy passage of scripture, our focus is going to be on verses 13 through 17. Because these few verses outline the purpose for which God set aside John and called him as the forerunner of Jesus Christ. Now to kind of get the setting squared away in our heads, uh, we've been given some information here in the text. First of all, you will note the time. Herod the Great was king in Israel when the angel Gabriel told Zacharias that he would have a son. Since Herod the Great died in 4 BC, John then was born before that time, most likely in the spring of 6 BC. So the setting here would be sometime in the summer of 7 BC. Notice also that it's God who told Zacharias through the angel Gabriel that the child's name would be called John. Now this is an unusual matter because traditionally the firstborn son would be named after the father or after the grandfather or some notable individual in the family's history. But that was not to be the case with this child. The name John means grace of God or gift of God. And it underscores once again what we have talked about before. And that is that God's plan of salvation for those who believe in his son Jesus Christ and receive him as Lord and Savior, that plan of salvation is entirely by God's grace. Entirely by God's grace. Now that idea, that concept of salvation, redemption by God's grace alone was radically different and is radically different from the plan that we make to save ourselves. Nowadays, uh, people have the idea that uh, the, the burden of proof with regard to one's salvation rests upon them and their abilities to perform certain duties or to engage in certain rituals or to uphold certain traditions uh, of religion. But the scripture teaches us, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, what? It is the gift of God. John would be a reminder to the children of Israel, since his name means gift of God or grace of God, He would be a constant reminder to the children of Israel that fellowship with God is through grace, not through ritual, not through uh, ceremony, 
not through tradition, but by God's grace and God's grace alone. Another note to make this morning is that the name John was a very common name in those days. And so it's important that we realize that who we're talking about this morning is John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer is literally the translation, but we call him John the Baptist. John the Baptist, not John the Apostle, but John, and not John the Galilean, but John the Baptist, son of Zechariah. Now you'll note also that John the Apostle He was the son of a man also whose name starts with a Z, Zebedee. So that helps us to distinguish between John the Apostle and John the Baptist. I also want you to note in verse 15, the Bible tells us that John the Baptist would be great in the sight of the Lord. Now when we read through the Gospels, we realized that John became very popular among the people and he also became reviled by the elders. But he was great in the eyes of the Lord. And the scripture tells us how he was great, why he was great in the eyes of the Lord. First, I want you to note that he would be totally dedicated to God and to God's service. Note what the scripture tells us here. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. That refers to the devotion that John the Baptist was to have to the Lord in his life and in his ministry. Now, wine was a common drink in those days and in that region. Wine in those days would be comparable to our grape juice today or to apple cider, if you like apple cider. Strong drink differentiates between table wine or grape juice and fermented wine. Strong drink could be made out of the juice of the figs or the juice of dates or the juice of grapes, but sugar was added to the juice and was allowed to sit until the juice fermented. This made it strong drink because it had the power to intoxicate a person. You drink too much of it, you get drunk. But you can drink all of the regular wine, the grape juice that you wanted to, and it would have very little effect upon you. But John would drink neither one of these drinks. He would not partake of table wine. He would not partake of strong drink. Nor would he be influenced by them. John's mind and John's spirit would remain clear and focused on the Lord and his ministry. He would not be a party animal, nor would he be associated with those who were. He would only fall under the influence 
of the power of the Holy Spirit of God. I remember back in my college days, back when Moses was still floating in a basket down the Nile River, we had an individual who was uh, coming to the college who was a Christian hypnotist, a Christian hypnotist. And he was going to uh, do his thing in chapel one day. And in our religious education class, uh, one of the students asked our professor, uh, Mrs. Frances Jennings, if she was going to go to the uh, service, the chapel service, and if she was going to uh, uh, watch the hypnotist do his thing. And she said no, she wasn't. And she wouldn't encourage people to go and to submit to uh, the influence of the hypnotist. Well, why, Ms. Jennings? It, it will be great fun. And she says, I want no power to influence my thinking or my conduct other than the power of God's Holy Spirit. John would not be influenced by anything that he partook as food or as drink that would influence him in any way apart from God's Holy Spirit to do God's will. Second, you will note, John was to be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth. The angel Gabriel told Zacharias that even in his mother's womb, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this doesn't mean that John was conceived by the Holy Spirit as Jesus was. Rather, it indicates that he was set apart by God for God's service even before he was born. He would have no other job in life but to do the will of God. He would have no wife, no children. He would engage only in the preparation for and in the involvement in the ministry to which God called him. Now, let me just speak a word, if you will, about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that, that's a concept, that's a word that's bantered around uh, in church groups and by different religious groups uh, quite often. And quite often, the understanding, the biblical understanding of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit is obscured by the experiences, the so-called experiences of people. To be filled with the Holy Spirit does not necessarily mean that you speak in tongues. To be filled with the Holy Spirit does not necessarily mean that you act in some weird, non-normal way. It doesn't mean that suddenly you have the ability to leap over pews or run around buildings or even leap over tall buildings with a single bound. To be filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you're some kind of strange, odd creature walking on two legs that comes out of the wilderness like some wild man. 
Of course, women would never come out of the wilderness looking like a wild person, but men would. (laughs) To be filled with the Holy Spirit means, biblically, it means to be set apart. It means to be taught by and led by the Holy Spirit in your life. It it does have an effect on a person's behavior. It does have an effect on a person's language and speech. It does have an effect on a person's attitude and conduct. But it does not mean that an individual is going to be some wild, harebrained person who acts in a very strange, weird, and offensive way. To be filled with the Holy Spirit means that God has set you apart to do something that He has filled you with the Holy Spirit to do. And the filling of the Holy Spirit empowers you and enables you to do what it is that God has called you and set you apart to do. That's what it means scripturally. So here... The angel Gabriel was telling Zacharias that his son John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. That is, his mind, his affections, his desires, his will, everything about John would be under the constant influence of God's Holy Spirit. As we all should if you name the name of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Third, verses 16 and verses 17 tells us that John was to go before the Lord in the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In other words, John was to be a great prophet. This was the work of the biblical prophets to prepare the people for the word of the Lord to make sure that people know understand and realize that God exists and that God desires of them to acknowledge him as Lord and to serve him as God as a matter of fact John would be the last of the great Old Testament prophets. Jesus said in Luke chapter 7 verse 28, For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. He would close out the Old Testament dispensation as the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And he would be that great prophet because... He was sent specifically to prepare the children of Israel for the coming of their Messiah. Now why would such a man be necessary? I mean, didn't they have the priests in their day? Didn't they have the scribes? Didn't they have the Pharisees and the Sadducees to prepare them for the coming of the Lord? Why? Would God have to send a man like John the Baptist to prepare the people for the coming of the Christ? Except for a small remnant of people. 
The Jews possessed a very shallow faith in God. Except for a small remnant of people, the Jews possessed a very shallow faith in God. They were spiritually ignorant, proud, ambitious, and strong-willed. A lot like folks today. Not just outside the church, but inside the church. Some of this resulted from their identity as God's chosen people. Some of it came from their history. On again and off again with God. In God's favor, out of God's favor. Experiencing blessing from God, experiencing judgment from God. And then some of it came from their current situation. They were living in a land under the control of a foreign empire. They were living under the laws that were not the laws of God. They were living under the leadership of heathen kings. Their life was hard, often bitter. Many poor people in the land. And quite often those who had means were selfish with those means. Would not contribute to the relief of the poor. Would not be hospitable to those who had not. But the attitude that they had also came from the religious leaders. Those leaders that emerged during the intertestamental period when for over 400 years God remained silent. And so these were a people adrift from God, and many of them estranged from God, just like the Jewish people today. You see, there were three prominent religious groups in Israel at the time of Jesus. There were the Pharisees, you know about them. They were the most popular group because most of the people followed the leadership of the Pharisees. Then you had the Sadducees. These were individuals that were least popular because they were the wealthy elite and they were out of touch with what was going on among the common folk. And then you had the Essenes who are not mentioned in the New Testament at all. In addition to these three main groups, you had subgroups or splinter groups that were popular among certain segments of the population. They were the scribes, which is a branch of the Pharisees, and their focus was on the interpretation of Mosaic law. Then you had the Herodians. They were the political friends of King Herod. 
You had the Galileans, who are not just the folks who lived in Galilee, they did that, but they were also a religious sect, separate and apart from scribes and Sadducees. They were a violent political right-wing branch of the Pharisees. And then you had the Sanhedrin, the religious supreme court that consisted mainly of the wealthy ruling class. So these Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes came about 150 years before Jesus was born. But by the time of the birth of Christ, the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees, the priests, the religious leaders of the day, had become arrogant, faithless in their religion, and corrupt in their leadership. We're talking about the clergy now. They were arrogant and prideful. In matters of religion, there was no real faith in God. And insofar as their leadership over the people was concerned, they were as corrupt as corrupt could be. They taught the people to ignore the most basic and yet important doctrines of Scripture, which continued to make the people spiritually ignorant, proud, ambitious, and worldly. While the Mosaic Law was idolized in their minds, it was seldom applied in their lives. The people were religious, very religious, but they were irreverent and rebellious toward God. Their religion became their God, in effect. So God sent John the Baptist out of the wilderness of Judea to call the people back to God by preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. John was bold. He was spiritually powerful. He was unapologetic. He would not excuse his message. He wouldn't apologize for his message. His call to repentance was directed to each and every individual, to the commoner as well as to the clergy. And he did not back down from that message, even in the face of King Herod. John lived a simple life. His food was basic. His clothes were common his living accommodations were modest. We would say today he'd probably be homeless. Lived out in the open air. His ministry was plain, but it was powerful. And though he was a cousin to Jesus, he was noted for his fearlessness and his bold stand on the truth of God's word. He didn't give in to peer pressure. 
He didn't give in to popular opinion. And he certainly wasn't concerned about political or religious considerations. He was God's man. And his focus in life was not only to be God's man, but to serve God as a man. His ministry ended in the spring of AD 28 when he was imprisoned for rebuking King Herod Antipas, who was the son of Herod the Great. See, Herod Antipas had illegally married Herodias, the divorced wife of his brother Philip. And when a birthday party was held in the king's honor, Herod Antipas became enamored with his wife's daughter, his stepdaughter. You see, she danced before the king and all of the king's cronies. And he became enamored with her. Well, let's just put it plainly. He lusted after her. And as a result of that, he promised her anything that she wanted. She consulted with her mother, Herodias, who hated John the Baptist because he confronted Herod Antipas about their marriage. And so Herodias told Salome, her daughter, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So she did. Herod regretfully complied. And John was executed in his prison cell. That's the life of John the Baptist in a nutshell. But there are some lessons that we can learn from John in our lives today, in the world that we're living in today, especially for those of us who are struggling in our Christian walk, those of us who find ourselves doubting and questioning and maybe even weak uh, when we face the pressures of our peers or colleagues or whatever. And so I want you to note some of these lessons that are important for us. This is by no means exhaustive, but just a few things that we can take home with us today. First of all, it's important for us to understand that believing in Jesus Christ with your whole heart is possible. Being devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ in this world that we're living in today is absolutely possible for you. John knew that the Messiah was coming. God had prepared John out in the wilderness for quite a number of years before age 30 when he appears on the scene and begins to preach the message of repentance and baptizing people in preparation for the coming of the Lord. God had ministered to John out in the wilderness, making him ready, preparing him in mind, body, and spirit for the coming of the Lord. He knew the Lord was coming. He believed this to the very core of his being. 
And he spent his entire life preparing for the day when the Lord would appear. Now, let me ask you something. Do you believe the Lord is coming again? Are you preparing yourself for that coming? Anything short of wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ in our daily lives will make us ill-prepared for when the Lord does return. And it could be at any moment. He could return today. He could return this next week. His return is imminent. We do not know the day nor the hour, but we know He's coming again. And we need to be watching. And we need to be waiting for His appearing. Second... The path of Christian faith and service is narrow. The path of Christian faith, true Christian faith, and faithful Christian service is narrow. Being a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ takes preparation, it takes dedication, it takes perseverance. And none of those are easy. None of those are easy. Daily, John faced the hardships of not fitting in with the elite crowd. Cultural norms he would not allow to influence him. Doubters didn't share his enthusiasm for Jesus. Even his own disciples had problems with Jesus. And John had to deal with those friends and those disciples. The religious leaders hounded him constantly regarding his faith. But John didn't waver. He stayed focused He stayed on point with the message and the mission that God had prepared him for. And that is summed up in verses 26 and 27 of John's gospel. When he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one that you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Despite everything that was thrown at him by his peers, by the religious leaders, by those that Satan had influenced him to derail him, to get him off track, John would not waver. Now you may very well say, well, God wouldn't permit him. That the Holy Spirit of God in him would not allow John to be a a wine bibber. Wouldn't allow uh, John to be a party animal. Wouldn't allow John to associate with the rabble of the world. And I disagree with that totally. The Holy Spirit of God did not override John's will. But the Holy Spirit of God did influence John in such a way that John determined in his own will that he would serve the Lord God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength. He made that decision and he stuck with that decision. And nothing or no one would persuade him 
to set that decision aside. John's faith in God kept him steadfast on his course until the time when he could say, as Jesus approached him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. All of us as Christians should have that same steadfast faith in the face of a world that is corrupt and dying in sin. Third, while it is hard to know what John felt in prison before his execution, we do know that he did have his doubts about Jesus. And I know that's hard to understand, it's hard to grasp, but it's very clear to us in Scripture that when John was in prison, he sent some of his disciples who had visited him one day, he sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one that we have been waiting for, or should we be looking for someone else? In other words, John was not sure. For some reason or another, in his mind, John was not sure. He had doubted. I don't know if you've ever doubted your faith. I have. There have been times when I have wondered, God, where are you? Are you on vacation somewhere? There are times when I've felt in my spirit that my prayers didn't get above the ceiling. There are times when it seemed like anything and everything that I would do in the course of my ministry failed. There were times when, like John, and I'm sure you have experienced this as well, when even the people of God would rebuke you and rebuff you and stand opposed to you as you were doing your dead level best to serve the Lord God as you felt led to serve Him. And that causes us to doubt from time to time. Is it a sin to doubt? No. It's a sin to act upon your doubts. But it is not a sin to doubt. What did John do when this doubting came along? He sent his disciples directly to Jesus to find out what the truth really is. And dear friends, that's what you and I need to do. In those times when we feel pressured, cornered, in those times when we feel that nothing is going right, in those times when we feel that the ministry that God has entrusted to us has become powerless, and we're wondering what in the world is going on, we don't go and talk to the counselors, we don't go and talk to the pastors, we don't go and talk to uh, those individuals that we may think have the answer, we go directly to the Lord God Himself. Really? Only one amen? What do you think prayer is for? Why do you think God has given us the gift of prayer? That we might go directly to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself and ask Him, Lord, what in the world is going on here? Enlighten me.
Show me. Give me some answers. What am I to do? John had his doubts. But in his doubts, he went directly to Christ for the answers to his doubts. What does James tell us? Look in James, the, gospel, the, the uh, epistle, the letter of James, chapter 1. James chapter 1. These doubts became a test for John's faith. These doubts tested his faith. What would you think in serving the Lord, doing what you were set apart to do, doing what the Holy Spirit of God empowered you to do, only to wind up in prison? You would have your doubts, I'm sure. You would have your questions, I'm sure. And these become a test of faith. But notice what James the Apostle tells us in, in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the sea. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now you know the end result, because I've given you the end result to his life and ministry. John was in prison, and he was doubting if indeed Jesus was the Christ. And his disciples went and asked, and then came back with the response that Jesus had. And that satisfied, the jo- uh, that, that satisfied John sitting there in that cell. And it didn't mean that John was going to be released from prison. It didn't mean that King Herod was going to change his mind about the whole matter. What it did mean was that he would give up his life for that cause of Christ. His ministry would lead him to death. A complete and totally different attitude that most Christians have today. We believe, for the most part, that following Jesus with full devotion and complete obedience will lead us to a bed of roses, will give us everything that we ask God for, that will bless us abundantly, that our lives will be filled with all kinds of stuff that we can enjoy. Success, popularity, influence over others, and so on and so forth. How many of you have experienced that in your Christian walk? There is no such promise that being truly obedient and faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ is going to make you physically wealthy. There is no promise that it's going to make you physically healthy all the days of your life. There is no promise that it's going to make you popular with everyone you come in contact with. But that didn't matter to John. And it shouldn't matter to you or me. John was going to live his life 
devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ despite his doubts. He was going to live his life according to the commitment that he made to Jesus Christ. And it cost him his life. John's life is an example to us of the seriousness with which we are to live the Christian life and fulfill our call to ministry. And every one of us are called to ministry. The call to ministry doesn't just rest on my shoulders or Pastor Joe's shoulders or Pastor Chris's shoulders or the shoulders of the deacons. All of us are called to be servants in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And John's life becomes an example to us of the seriousness with which we are to live out that Christian life and fulfill that ministry that we have been called to fulfill. He didn't play games with God. John didn't look upon his life as a, a, a toy to, to use and to manipulate uh, at his own whims and to, uh, and to uh, uh, bring him the things that he wanted. Faith in God demanded his total commitment to Jesus Christ. And so John lived his life introducing people to Jesus. I find that refreshing as well as remarkable. He wasn't called to pastor a church. He wasn't called to be a missionary. He wasn't called to be a professor in some school. He wasn't called to take his place among the religious leadership in Israel. He was called to introduce people to Jesus. Each and every one of us have that ministry. Amen? Amen? Repenting of sin was not an offensive thing with him. Do you hear me? Talking about repentance and talking about sin from the pulpit or out on the sidewalk or in the yard is something people don't want to discuss. They don't want to talk about. It's offensive to them. It wasn't offensive to John. It was necessary because John understood that unless we acknowledge sin in our lives, unless we turn away from our sin and turn back to God, there is no hope of salvation. There is no hope of God's blessing. There is no hope of fellowship with the true and living God. And so as a servant of God, John was not afraid to speak God's word, even when it meant calling people out for their sinful attitudes and their sinful actions. John believed, as well as you and I should believe, that the judgment of God is real and is to be avoided and can only be avoided through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Finally, John was entrusted with a unique ministry. But then all of us are entrusted with a unique ministry. All of us are different, and all of us are called to different ministries, and all of us are equipped by the Holy Spirit with different gifts. So every individual 
called by the Lord, has a unique ministry. We're saved to share Jesus with other people. And nowadays, dear friends, that has become a very unique ministry. Why? Because it's not a common thing anymore. It's not common among Christian people anymore to share their faith in Jesus Christ with other people. They're afraid they'll lose their friends. They're afraid they'll lose their jobs. They're afraid they'll be sent home from school. They're afraid of this, that, and the other. It's not a common thing to share Jesus Christ with others. As a matter of fact, it's becoming more and more common to keep your mouth shut if you're a Christian. But in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus tells us, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and I will be with you always to the end of the age. In John chapter 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I have given to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also should love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. The Apostle Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3, Sanctify the Lord in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you in meekness and in fear. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, bringing people to Jesus Christ. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. The Holy Spirit of God living in you as a Christian has not given you the message of going around asking people, what do you think about the weather? And he has not called us to discuss the political landscape. By the way, Super Tuesday is coming up this next week. (laughs) He has not called us to evaluate the economic situation in our country. He has called us to introduce people to Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any difference what the weather does. We'll survive it. It doesn't make any difference what the political outlay is going to be. We'll survive it. It doesn't matter what the economic outcome is going to, uh, is going to be. We'll survive that. But if you don't know Jesus, you'll not survive eternity. And people need to hear that. People need to know that. Their lives depend upon that. John the Baptist was an encouraging example of faithful obedience and trust in Jesus Christ. And we can follow that same example in our lives today. We can live and we can share the truth of God's worth whenever, wherever, and whomever God leads us. Let's pray.
Father, the days are no different today than they were in the days of Jesus. Religious people who have a shallow faith or no faith at all in you. People who are more concerned about life and living than they're concerned about your purpose for their life and your will for their living. The clergy in many areas of the country are corrupt in their leadership, faithless in their religion, arrogant in their lives, in their attitudes. We need more John the Baptists in our world today. We need men and women who will live their faith in Jesus Christ faithfully, committedly, who will be filled with the Holy Spirit not on occasion, but filled with the Holy Spirit continually under the influence of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, moment by moment, day by day. We have our doubts. John had his. We have our peer pressures. John had his. We have our critics. John had his. We have our friends who like to be around us and to fellowship with us, John had his. But John never allowed any of these things to derail him in his faithful, obedient service to Jesus Christ. I pray that for my brothers and sisters today and every day that you give us in the future until Jesus comes again. I'm going to ask the deacons to come and to attend to the table as we will observe the Lord's Supper. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.